Welcome back, everybody. Let's find our places. I do have one other quick announcement before we get started, and that is a prayer request. I would really appreciate all of you remembering me and several others in prayer. This afternoon, I'm going to begin a really long journey, joining Pastor Mark Trotter and a bunch of other people to go to Malawi. Um, we're taking off on Monday, actually, but I got to fly tonight to get early in the morning in Washington, D.C., and then we'll be taking off Monday morning, tomorrow morning, early for what seems like endless hours in an airplane, um, training hundreds of pastors, three different locations, um, just a lot of stuff going on that maybe you've heard some about before, but this is going to be my first time. Um, I have gotten all my vaccinations and all that sort of a thing, and I have been praying, many have been praying with me to not catch the flu that so many people have gotten. Thank the Lord I've been okay, so that's, that's good. Uh, but just pray for us, pray for our safety, pray for the trip, pray for all the luggage to make it, pray that it would be a blessing and that God's word would go forth and, and be glorified with that. Will you do that? Um, so I'll be gone for a couple of weeks, and uh, y'all can have some fun. <laughs> without me. All right, we're, Bible, we're our Bible studies in 1 Corinthians, and so we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter number 2 today. We finished chapter number 1 last time, so open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. And uh, while you're getting ready to open your Bibles, um, you know, I don't know about you, but we've had a little bit of reprieve, and I guess this week we're going to get temps into the 70s. I mean, it, you're thinking about it, aren't you? You're thinking about the spring. You're thinking about warmer weather, and most of us prefer warmer weather. Um, I, I like it. I like it better. Um, I like to play golf. I, I used to be decent at it. That was a long time ago. I'm not any good anymore, but I still enjoy to play golf. And um, if you don't know anything about golf, first off, please don't make fun of us. We really like it. But in the, in the sport of golf, um, you're allowed to carry 14 clubs in your bag. That's the maximum allowed number of clubs you're allowed to carry. And you carry 14 different clubs because so you've got drivers and fairway woods. They're made of metal now, metals, irons, wedges, putter, all these different. And every club is specifically designed to hit a different shot. So part of the challenge of playing golf is that you select the right club to hit the right shot. If you pick the wrong club, well, the ball's not going to end up where you wish it would have ended up, Right? So you'll never get the desired effect. And really, this is a good illustration of what we're going to look at today, because so it is with people. You can't deal with all people the same way. You can't hit the same shot with the same club with every person that you're dealing with, right? So we say, different strokes for different folks. Thank you. Thank you for the individual who got that. <laughs> so God understands this without question. He exhorts us to apply this principle in our lives and our ministry. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, where Paul says, Now we exhort you, brethren, notice, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. So if you can determine the state in which your audience is, well, that will help you determine how you should deal with them, right? And, and God does this. He does it with us. In Psalm 18, starting in verse 25, it says, With the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. With an upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure, thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward, thou wilt show thyself froward. And so we shouldn't be surprised when God is dealing with us in different ways. Maybe that's an indication how we've been dealing with the Lord. See, he, he works it out that way. James chapter 4 and verse number 6 says this, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So depending on your situation, he's going to deal with you differently. Well, in our text today, what Paul does is he continues the thoughts from chapter number 1. The, the idea of God's wisdom contrasted with man's wisdom and the foolishness of preaching the cross. And Paul is going to give us, starting in chapter number 2, some real-life application of the things that we learned more in theory in chapter number 1. 
And specifically, what he's going to explain is how we can deal differently with different audiences. And that's the title I gave today's message, How to Approach Different Offices, Audiences, excuse me. And so since the Bible clearly tells us that we are to follow the example of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11 and many other places like that, then what we're going to do is we're going to take Paul's example prayerfully and see how he would have us apply that to our lives. Okay, you guys ready? Let's start in chapter number 2, follow along. I'm going to read the first eight verses. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that are come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now we're going to dig into this, and I think you're going to see pretty clearly how there are different applications for the different audiences that you'll find in front of yourself. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and just pray that he'll help us understand. So Heavenly Father, as we do come in front of you, Lord, this morning, we do just thank you once again for the time of worship. What a great time to just lift up your name and express to you the thoughts and desires of our heart. And I pray, God, that you would just continue to fill us with your spirit and to speak your word to us and that we would see and that we would understand specifically how to be effective communicators how we can discern what's going on around us, how that we can understand our audience, and that we can learn how to most effectively deal with the audience that you put in front of us. Lord, it is an issue of ministry. We want to be better ministers. We want to be more fruitful. We want you to use us. We want to be used, but we want you to receive the honor and the glory and the fruit through it all. And so we submit ourselves to you asking that you use Paul's example and his exhortation to help us to be more like Christ. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. So there's only going to be two audiences, as we'll see, and the first one we're going to call the approach to the Corinthians. To the Corinthians. Now, obviously, this is a letter written to the Corinthians, but the idea is is that upon Paul's original arrival, when he first arrived in Corinth, and you can be getting ready in Acts chapter 18, we're going to look in there, because that's the story of Paul's missionary journey when he first arrives in Corinth. When he first arrives there, they're not Christians. They're unsaved people. And so when I say the approach to the Corinthians, what I'm really meaning is your approach to unsaved people, to non-believing people. And if you look in Acts chapter 18, it sets the context in verse 1. It says, After these things Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. So he's just arriving in Corinth. We're going to jump down to like verse number 4. And here's what he did. It says, He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul enters the area. He did what he always did. He starts in the synagogue with people who would have understand the Old Testament Scriptures, and he just preaches Jesus Christ crucified, like he talked about in chapter number one. He had some results, for example, in verse number eight. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So there you have it. The the, the use of the word the Corinthians is synonymous with the idea lost people. Uh, The approach to the Corinthians then is clearly that this is evangelism. We're talking about evangelism. And so when we're talking about evangelism, I want you to notice two main points, and we'll see this in each case. Letter A, about the presentation. First and foremost, Paul's presentation was flawed. His presentation was flawed. He says in verse number one that he did not come with excellency of speech. He says in verse number four that he did not have these enticing words of man's wisdom. Because all of that 
excellency of speech and all of those enticing words, that's politicking. That's getting people, that's what the world does, to convince you to believe or do something that otherwise in your mind, you know better that you shouldn't be thinking or believing or doing. But they're going to convince you and they're going to use excellency of speech and enticing words of man's wisdom in order to do such a thing. In fact, Paul warns us about such people in Romans 16 and verses 17 and 18 where it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Who are these people? For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, notice how they operate, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. And that is a common worldly tactic, that by good words and fair speeches, they're going to deceive you. They're going to deceive you. And Paul says, watch out for those guys, mark them. And stay away from them. Don't have anything to do with them. So Paul didn't waste any time with any of that stuff. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't involved in that kind of rhetoric. That's all of the flesh. Paul just let God speak for himself. And that's it. He said in verse number 3 that his personal state was in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now let me just clarify for you. The Apostle Paul was no coward. He was not afraid to take the Word of God into difficult situations. He rose to those challenges and he faced them and he took them head on every time. He was not afraid of persecution. He received the persecution often gladly. He was warned by the Holy Spirit to not go to Jerusalem or he'd be bound and things would happen. He said, I don't care. I don't care about my own life at all. I'm going to preach the gospel. Paul is not saying he was afraid to preach the gospel. The thing that Paul's fear, fearful of is the idea is, is that he didn't want to do it in his own power. He didn't want it to be something that wouldn't be effective. And because he had this going on inside of him, this internal struggle, God encouraged him. So if you go back to Acts chapter 18 and the narrative from Acts chapter 18, in verse number 9 it says, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak. And hold not thy peace. So his presentation was flawed. He wasn't necessarily relying on the fact that, man, I'm just, I'm just really comfortable in front of people. I'm just really good with words. I'm a great debater. I'm, he, didn't, he didn't put any stock in any of that stuff. But I want you to notice, letter B, his information was focused. His information was focused. He says, in verse number one, I came to you not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. I didn't have excellent wisdom. In other words, worldly wisdom. Worldly knowledge. In other words, when dealing with lost people, Paul didn't pretend to know everything about everything. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody and you find that as you begin to share the gospel with them, similar to the woman at the well with Jesus Christ in John chapter 4, they just keep changing the subject. And they just keep wanting to ask you about other side issues to keep you off the main subject. Paul said, you know what, I didn't, I didn't even mess with that stuff. I didn't come to you not only with not with excellency of speech, I didn't come to you to debate every topic that you can think of. That's not what I came here for. That's not what I did. In fact, in verse number 2, it says, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. By the way, the Apostle Paul knew other things. He was trained under Gamaliel as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul had the ability, if you go back to Acts 17, he mixed it up with those guys and those philosophers in Athens. He had the intellectual capacity he had some ability, but he determined, I'm not doing it. Why? Because he knew his audience. And he knew his audience were unsaved people. And unsaved people only need to hear one message. It's not the details of eschatology. It's not the details of all the different, you know, small 
doctrinal nuances that we can study and enjoy studying in the body of Christ. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He knew that that's what it was. So His presentation may have been flawed, but man, His information was laser-focused. I mean, go back and look again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and just remind yourself of verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. They, they don't want to talk about that. They want to change the subject. The woman at the well, well, our ancestors, you know, they, they believe this, and your ancestors, they believe that. And Jesus says, yeah, what difference does it make? You must be born again. I mean, he brings it back to where it's supposed to be. Uh, verse 21, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. That's the testimony of God. I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you that testimony, the testimony that God the Son came in human flesh, lived a sinless life, and willingly laid down his life and died on a cross to pay for your sin and my sin. That's the message that he understood. That's the gospel of your salvation. And he says that is the power of God. Because he says in verse number four, but it was the demonstration of the spirit and of power. And that's what we see in Romans chapter one and verse 16. Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to, unto everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul understood, look, I just need to get the gospel out. I just need to unleash it. I need to turn it loose and let the gospel, which is the power of God through the Spirit of God, do the work that it was given to do. And if I try and think that I need to dress it all up and present it in some just beautiful way that will convince you, or if I want to go down all the rabbit trails that a lost person might want to go down to keep from getting to the main point, at the end of the day, it's just not going to bring the desired effect. You're using the wrong golf club. You're hitting the wrong shot. You're not realizing what you're trying to achieve, and you're not going to achieve anything. Paul understood these things. Can I encourage you today? Y'all, all y'all, you can do this. You can do this. I mean, you ought to be encouraged that you don't need to have some ridiculous oratory skill. You ought to be encouraged that you don't need to know everything about everything that people might ask you. You ought to be encouraged that the Apostle Paul, who is our example, said, I determined not even to bother. You might know a lot of things. Certainly you all know things about a lot of things. That's not the point with the Corinthians. That's not the point with the lost people. You can tell them the one and only thing that really matters, and that's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You say, well, I don't know. I'm kind of timid. What can I do? How can I do that? Can I help you? Here's how you can do it. Just tell your story. Have you come to know the Lord Jesus personally? Do you know that you know that you have eternal life? If you don't, then we want to help you so you can know. But many of you would say, yes, I know. I have put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that he saved me from my sins. I know that he's changed my life. Tell them that. Tell them that. You know, there's atheist people, there's people out there who are quasi-intellectuals because God calls them fools. And they want to say that the Bible's nothing. It's just written by a man. It's just a book. You got a book. I got a book. You know what? Just tell them your story. Your story becomes the living epistle that'll be written in their hearts. Because you know what? They can deny all they want the Word of God. And I get it. They won't ultimately get saved until they believe the Word of God. But nevertheless, you can plant that seed by telling them your story. Most people will respect you enough to let you tell your story. And they can't deny your experience, right? They can't deny the fact that you say, this happened to me. And then you just figure how to flip the script a little and say, well, what about you? Tell me your story. Or how could this apply to you? Or what do you think about that? 
I mean, just tell them. Be, that's why we call it being a witness for Jesus Christ. A witness tells what they have seen and heard and experienced. So be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're going to share your story, and by the way, I think that each and every one of you should have your personal testimony prepared. Like spend time, go home and prepare it. Write it out. In fact, I would encourage you to write out two versions, a short version and a long version. And you know which one you're going to use more often? The short one. The short one. Very briefly, you want three points. You want to be able to help people understand what your life was like before you knew Jesus Christ. You don't have to go into a lot of detail. I don't want to go into a lot of detail about what my life was like before Jesus Christ. Suffice it to say, I had a lot of problems. I had no problem understanding I was a sinner. And so without specific detail, I was lost. I was wrong. I, my mindset was messed up. I was miserable. I had all these issues. And then what happened? What were the circumstances surrounding the day that I gave my heart and surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ? How did it happen that a man came and shared the gospel with me and I finally understood it and decided to surrender my heart and ask God to forgive me and invite him into my heart and my life as my Lord and Savior? So tell about your life before you were saved and the characteristics of it. Tell about your life at the moment of salvation so they get the idea, oh, that's what you do to get saved. And then talk about your life since you've been saved and how he's changed you and given you peace and purpose and direction and he's calmed you and he's given you focus and, he, and he's just helped you through all the difficulties that you may have had and know your problems haven't all gone away but now you have strength and somebody to walk with you to do it, etc., etc., etc. Talk about how you used to love sin and now you hate sin. Talk about how you didn't care about God's word and now you love God's word. I mean, there's just endless things you could talk about, right? And prepare it in such a way that you can tell that story in three, four minutes. Because if you meet somebody quickly in an environment where you don't have a lot of time, man, you can just you can get it out there. Just be determined that that is the story that you're going to stick with. I mean, why is it that Paul wanted to stick to the script while he was among all of these philosophical intellectuals? Because like I said, he most certainly had the skill to engage him in debate. Well, he tells us why in verse number 5 that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, look, you need to understand that your faith is so precious that it has to be founded solely on what God did in you. I remember the young man who shared the gospel with me when I got saved. But I honestly don't know a ton about him. I don't, it doesn't matter. All that matters is through him, the Lord showed up. And the Lord changed me. And if people never remember you, you should rejoice in that too. Who cares about us? Let God get the glory, right? Let him that glorieth glory in the Lord, it says at the end of chapter number one. Your faith need never stand on the skillful presentation of somebody who brought you the word. You should never argue like the Corinthians in chapter 1, well, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. You should never get to the point where you're like, well, you know, I got saved at a Billy Graham crusade, so, you know, that counts more. Of course not. It's not about your abilities. And I've used this quote before, but I like it. If you can talk somebody into getting saved, the devil can talk them out of it. The devil can talk them out of it. So Paul just determined that this is what he was going to do. Why? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because it's not about your abilities. It's about God's message. So at the end of the day, I put this in your notes. Your approach to unbelieving people should be uncomplicated. It should be simple. You, you know the KISS principle, right? Keep it simple, saint. <laughs> Don't get bogged down in their arguments. Just preach Christ crucified. Okay? All right, the second group, number two. Christians, your approach to Christians. So this is verses six through eight. 
Now, when Paul first arrives, they're all unsaved, but they start to get saved, and, and that's awesome, right? Then they needed to learn. So the way that he deals with them as Christians is going to be a bit different than the way that he deals with them as lost people, right? And he makes the transition in verse 6 because he says, How be it? Nevertheless, however, see, he's making a transition. And then he goes on and he says, We speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Perfect does not mean sinless. Perfect always means complete, mature. These are people who have been born again, and they are growing. They are learning. And he says, we speak wisdom. Now, in this case, the wisdom is the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world. And you can tell by the context which one he's referring to. So these are saved people that are actively now learning the Bible. And they need to continue learning, and they need to continue having a teacher. So we go back to Acts chapter 18, and we pick up the narrative to understand what's going on here. And in verse 10 and 11, we left off last time in verse 9, after the Lord encouraged Paul, said, Don't be afraid, just go. And he said, For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Now the Calvinist will want you to say, See, God is telling him, go and evangelize the elect. I've already elected them, and they're just there waiting. So go evangelize them. No, 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 no. That's not the context. They're not paying attention. Verse 11, he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Who are the them? Them are those that are perfect. They are the ones that God has. God's people are God's people because they believe. We are God's people by faith in Jesus Christ. And so God says, look, I've got people in the city that need to continue to learn. So Paul decided, instead of continuing to move on in my missionary journeys, I'm going to go ahead and park here for 18 months. And I'm going to teach him. It's one of the longest standing places that he stayed to continue to teach the Bible. So that's what we see him doing right here. These are God's people. These are Christians that God had, and he gave Paul the courage, and he said, just continue and do what needs to be done. They need to learn. They need a teacher. I need you to stay. I need you to do that. So speak the wisdom, my wisdom, unto them that are growing. So in other words, unlike the first crowd, this is fairly obvious. I know you know where we're going. This is not evangelism. This is discipleship. That's what this is. This is discipleship. You've got an entirely different crowd now, right? You're dealing with believers now. And here's the thing you got to get. And I think this will be an encouragement to you. I hope so anyway. It was an encouragement to me. We're going to look once again at the presentation and the information. The presentation with the first group was flawed, right? You know what the presentation is with the second group? It's flawed. It's still flawed. Listen, just because you get saved and just because you're focused on doing what God told you to do does not necessarily mean that you just possess this innate ability to be a, just a, a great logical communicator or a debater. You may, and those are skills that you can learn and hone if you want to, but it still might not. And I'm going to present to you here in just a second how Paul himself continued to struggle with some of these issues. And that should be an encouragement because his characteristic of being less than perfect in his speaking ability, as far as maybe people would judge it, it really didn't change. That didn't change. So we're talking about different approaches for different audiences. Well, in this case, that part's the same, right? Notice the testimony of the Apostle Paul and his speaking skills in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10 and verse number 10. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Contemptible. Do you use that word much? Do you know what contemptible means? Contemptible means disgusting, offensive. Paul found himself from time to time, you could say contemptible is loathsome, hateful. He found himself getting all worked up and fired up and, and teaching and preaching and writing and visiting and winning people to the Lord and training them and doing what he was doing. 
that I think it got away from them sometimes. I think sometimes they said, look, man, you're, you're kind of rough. Well, that's kind of who he is. He was kind of rough. You might say his speech was flawed. The great Apostle Paul had his challenges. Uh, it doesn't stop there. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 6. This is the same human audience, right? The Corinthians is just later in the, in the journey. He writes to them and he says, Hey guys, look, though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we've been made through, or we've, we have been truly made manifest among you in all things. And he's like, look, okay, okay. I know you don't always like the way I talk. And maybe it's true. And he says, although I've been rude in speech, I do, I've not been rude in knowledge. I mean, I've, I'm telling you the truth. And you know, people are funny, right? Because Different strokes for different folks. Not everybody just loves everybody's choice of presentation, right? I'm not everybody's cup of tea, and somebody else you might listen to might resonate with you a little better or vice versa. Not everybody likes it when somebody just puts it across the plate waist high and doesn't dress it up. Not everybody likes it when you just throw it out there and you just say, that's what God said, deal with it. You know, people these days, they want you to dress it up, right? I mean, people these days, they, they, want, they want the meat of God's Word. But they also want the plate to be garnished just right, and they want the colors set just so, and they want the setting and the napkins and the little forks. And everybody, you know, they want the whole thing set up really nice and, you know, the crystal water glasses and, and the whole deal. But you know what? I've learned, and this is just me, and I think at some level it was Paul, if we served up for you this beautiful, you know, French cuisine and you're just not hungry, you're not going to eat it because you're not hungry. But if you're hungry for some meat from God's Word, we could hack off a slab and throw it on the, on the ground <laughs> and you flat go after it because you're hungry. And Paul, it seems, was of that mindset. Paul was of the mindset to say, I don't know, I'm just throwing it out there. Call it rude if you want, but not in content. The content's spot on. You can't argue about that, right? So 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 10, it keeps going. Therefore, I will write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Look, I'm not, I don't speak the way that I speak, Paul said, because I'm trying to destroy you. I'm trying to build you up. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a warning about all this stuff in a letter because I know me, man. If I get there with you, I might get all fired up. And so let's just start with it on paper first. <laughs> and hopefully that's enough for you to get it worked out. Isn't that kind of how it works, parents? When, when your kids are not behaving the way that you'd like, how do you begin to correct them? You always begin to correct them with words. You say, now, you know, honey, I told you not to do that. Uh, and we, we, need to, we need to not do that again. Okay. Now the question is, are they going to actually stop because you told them? Or are they going to need more incentive? <laughs> are we going to have to ramp it up a little to get their attention? Well, was Paul's speech the model for all Bible teaching? Of course not. Don't be ridiculous. I think that he might even say that, I don't know if I'm proud of it. It's just who I am. He was just being true to himself. But people are funny, man. People are awful thin-skinned these days. Haven't you noticed? You can tell them the truth. You can tell them God's truth. But if you don't spray perfume all over it and if you don't give all the disclaimers, you're like, well, I don't like the way he talked. Okay. Did you like what he said? 
Did you like the content? Because, listen, y'all, here, okay, so here's the point. We're going to get to content in a minute, which will change, obviously. But here, notice the application for us all. Be encouraged. Your speech might be flawed, too, but God can still use you. You might not have all the abilities to be the most eloquent, perfectly balanced presenter of truth that ever existed, but God can use you. In evangelism, just tell your story. Talk about Christ crucified. In discipleship, there's more to talk about, okay? But man, God can use you. He's made you who you are. Don't sweat the small stuff. Because at the end of the day, if the person's going to grow, it's not because of how cool you are. The person's going to grow because you gave them the goods. And they connected with the Lord. And if you've grown at all, you've grown because the Lord has taught you His Word by His Spirit. And if He used a human being to help you, then praise God. But you didn't learn it because of that human being. You learned it because the Lord used Him. And that's the way it works. So here's the change in the whole narrative, letter B. The information now is not focused, it's full. It's complete. It's comprehensive. It's deep. It's revelatory. He says in verse 6, We speak wisdom among them that are perfect. The wisdom of God. Not the wisdom of this world. We speak the wisdom of God among them that are perfect. And he says, not the wisdom of this world or the princes of this world, the big shots, right? Which he says, come to naught. They, they amount to nothing. And that's what the wisdom of this world does. The wisdom of this world comes to naught, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And the princes of this world come to naught. So I put in your notes, the wisdom of this world is useless. But the wisdom of God uses worldly foolishness. The wisdom that this world has to espouse to you, friends, is equal to, on the authority of God's word, not, zero, nothing. The things that the princes of this world want to espouse to you are equal to exactly nothing. Do you get that? That's what he's saying. The wisdom of this world is useless. But God's wisdom is so cool. It can take what the world considers foolishness and use it and use it. It's all a matter of your perspective. From where do you get your reference point as you judge what's wise and what's foolish, right? The princes of this world are explained to us in the context of verse number 8 which none of the excuse me, princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The princes of this world are those that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. So historically, these are Jewish Pharisees, which would have been leaders of the Jewish peoples ethnically. But politically, they're the Roman governors who ultimately carry out the execution and the crucifixion. And Paul is saying, the princes of this world espouse the wisdom of this world ignorantly. Because had they really known the truth, they would have never done what they did. They'd have never done it. And the only reason they did it is because for whatever reason, they refused to know the truth. So historically, it's the Jewish Pharisees, the, the leaders of those peoples, and the Roman governors, the leaders of, well, the actual forces. So what does that mean for us today? The princes of this world making a fair application today would be world political leaders. Pick your favorite president and write their name in. Start with the one we got and go back as many as you want. Princes of this world. They could be the princes of other countries. They could be princes of countries we like or that we don't like. It doesn't really matter. What they are espousing, if it's not directly truth from the Word of God, it equals exactly nothing in light of eternity. In light of eternity. Now, we live in a temporal world, and 
we've got to deal with issues of our borders and, and moral issues. Okay, fine. We're talking in light of eternity. They mean nothing. Uh, but it's not just political leaders, although that is the direct context. I would say that as it refers to the political leaders of those times, we're talking about the movers and shakers. We're talking about the influencers of society of that day. So anybody who attempts to espouse wisdom to influence the masses could be in that category, right? So, you know, you might have Oprah and Ellen, news media outlets, Stephen Hawking, George Soros, Deepak Chopra, Tony Robbins, the pastor to unsaved people. Um, you, you could have any of those people, self-help gurus. You could pick any of them, and they all have their version of wisdom and advice about how you ought to live your life and be more fulfilled and how this plays out. Well, anything apart from the truth of God and His Word is exactly nothing. And you need to understand that. Because, and this is in your notes, the wisdom of God is found exclusively in the Word of God. Amen? Now, they might get lucky. I mean, the blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. And they might throw something out that's actually true, but it's because it's God's truth, right? And so it says it's a mystery to the unsaved world. That's what it says in verse number 7. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. So it's a mystery. It's hidden. But to us, it's manna from heaven. It's manna from heaven. Remember Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17? Some months ago we looked at this. Under one of the churches it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh. In other words, this is a believer who's living right against the spirit of the age of his day. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And will give him a white stone and the stone a new name written which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it. So there's something to this idea that the Lord is going to give you, Christian, that is perfect, that is learning, the wisdom of God, which is like manna from heaven which, by the way, back in Exodus 16, is a beautiful picture of God's Word. The wisdom of God is always found in the Word of God. And if you don't already know it, we're going to define for you the word mystery. Because the word mystery literally means a truth that was once hidden, but is now revealed. That's what the word mystery means. It's a truth of God that for a time was hidden, but eventually is revealed. And made clear to everybody. And so what he says is that we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom. And the hidden wisdom is given that God ordained it from before the world unto our church, our glory. So if you're going to understand the mysteries, listen, your, your information, if you're involved in discipleship, your, your presentation might be flawed, but your information needs to be good. I mean, you can't get the info wrong, y'all, and expect to build disciples of Jesus Christ. The information has to be full. So he mentions mysteries. He mentions things that were hidden. Well, don't you know that the New Testament gives us seven mysteries in the New Testament? We're not going to study them. We're not going to get into them, but you have them listed for you in your notes. So you can make the references and you can do the Bible study. But in 1 Timothy 3.16, it talks about great is the mystery of godliness. And it says, God was manifest in the flesh. So the idea is the mystery of the incarnate Christ. Jesus Christ, God the Son, comes to this earth in human flesh. That's carne, that's carnate, incarnate flesh. The mystery of the incarnate Christ. Uh, the, exactly how that was all going to play out to the Old Testament believer, wasn't super clear. That's why they didn't get it when he showed up that way. It was a mystery. But now it's revealed. Colossians 1.27 is the mystery of the indwelling Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Christ living inside of your body, which becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit, was a mystery to an Old Testament believer. The Spirit of God could come and live within the lives of believers, but the Spirit of God could also leave believers. Not the case in the New Testament context anymore. We're sealed unto that day of redemption. You're going to disciple people. You're going to teach them things. You better hope that they understand the incarnate Christ, the indwelling Christ. Ephesians 5.32, the mystery of our unity with Christ. Ephesians 5 is that whole story of the husband and the wife, and husbands love your wives, and Wives, submit to your husbands. And, and the whole thing goes down and it says, but I speak a mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Oh, you thought I was talking about marriage. Okay, well, that's an illustration. I'm talking about Christ and the church. So the church is the very body of Christ. The church is the very bride of Christ. And the two become one in verse 32, 31. And so we see our complete and total unity with Jesus Christ who indwells us. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, the mystery of the rapture of the church. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise first. This is a mystery to the Old Testament saints, but now it's been revealed. Listen, we speak the things that were mysteries. They were hidden. They're not hidden anymore. You're going to disciple people. They need to understand that there is coming a day when every born-again believer is going to be called up in a second and we will give an account to him as a result of our lives in Christ. That was a mystery, not anymore. Romans eleven twenty five, 25, the mystery of the return of Israel. There's a lot of people out there saying God's all done with Israel. Sorry, wrong, you missed the mystery. He's not done with Israel. Israel's coming back. Now they're already a nation. They've taken on their form. They're the dry bones laying in the field, but the Spirit of God hasn't come and moved and put them all together and given them life yet. They will become the people of God in the tribulation. Not all of them, but there will be of them that will. You know we're getting close because the form is already there. They're a nation. They're waiting. It was a mystery. For us, especially post-1948, we should get it. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, the mystery of iniquity. That's the mystery of the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist has been working in the New Testament days. Something that would have been hard for them to understand in Revelation 17, verse 5. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of this earth. It's the religion of Antichrist. It's the religion of Antichrist. So there's a spirit of Antichrist, and the Antichrist is going to work, or the devil through this man who is the Antichrist, is going to work through an established religious institution. And these things are things that can be hidden to the, to the natural man. These are things that can be hidden to the world. And he says, look, you need to understand this stuff. You've got to be able to do that if people are going to grow. And that's why Paul taught them. That's why he hung around there as long as he did. God ordained those truths, y'all, unto our glory. Unto our glory. So, as a result, this is in your notes, your approach to believing people should be unassailable. You know, you might be rude in speech and you might not. But man, you better make sure you're not rude in knowledge. I mean, your knowledge has to be spot on. You gotta know what you're talking about. Titus 2.8 says it this way, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is a contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. That's why in 2 Timothy 2.15 it says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. You've got to study, right? Rightly dividing the word of truth. You need to know that there are divisions. You need to know where the divisions are. You need to not make them wrongly. But it says, shun profane and vain babblings. Don't just go off and just get into these dumb arguments that won't help anybody. They increase unto more ungodliness. And 2 Corinthians eleven six. but though I be rude in speech, remember that? Yet not in knowledge. Man, you've got to know what you're talking about. You might stumble over your presentation, but if you're giving them God's word, well, that's really all that really matters, isn't it? That's what he's asking about us. Listen, people can forgive your speaking style. You want to know what they're not going to forgive? Lying to them. Lying to them. Once they figure out that they've been listening to you and you've been lying to them, you don't know what you're talking about, they're not sticking around. They're not sticking around. Man, tell them the truth. Love them enough to do that. Know the word of God. Let God do the talking. And it'll work out just fine. It'll work out just fine. So, 
(sighs) Don't stress. Seriously, it's okay. Let life come to you. Be prepared. And God will use you. So we have a theme that we've been walking through this entire book. It just started. But we're calling this book study with the subtitle, The Power of Community. And I kind of haven't talked about that for a week or two, and so I just want to visit it for a second. The power of community. How does that apply to what we're doing in chapter number two? Well, it applies to how we're doing in chapter number two because Paul makes it very clear in these first eight verses, you know what, it's not about me. It's not about who I am and how I do what I do. It's about ministry. It's about people being saved. It's about people growing in their faith. It's about the increase of us. It's about the increase of the family of God. And even with the challenges, it's about ministry. That's what it's all about. It's the power of community. So when you're dealing with unsaved people, the acronym was KISS, right? K-I-S-S. When you're dealing with growing believers, here's my acronym. T-U-R-D. Teach us right doctrine. Can't believe I just said that. You're going to remember it though, aren't you? Please don't write that on the connection cards. Look, at the end of the day, what should I do if I don't know enough to teach others yet? Well, one thing you can do is evangelism. Tell them your story. Man, if you're saved, just go, t- just go win people to Jesus, man. Just have at it. And the other thing you can do is get trained. I mean, learn to be a disciple. Let somebody else teach you so that you know what you're talking about so that then you can go and teach others also. What will you do with this information? Seriously, actually, really in your life? Will you commit, before you start putting everything away, just, just listen to me for one second. Will you commit this week to go share the gospel or your story with one person? Will you do that? Will you ask God to open a door of utterance so that you can just focus on Christ crucified? You can just tell the story of Jesus to somebody. Because we can sit here and we can laugh and we can learn and all that's fine and go out of here and never tell anybody. What good is it? Will you do that? And then you might ask yourself, will you sign up for the discipleship process so that we can teach and train you if that's what you need? All that's available on your connection card. Put it on there. We'll get back with you. We'll help you. But you have to decide, I want this. I need this. Come help me. I want to do it. And many of you are here and you're like, I've, I've been discipled. I know all that stuff. Are you actually investing in others? Are you actually sharing the word? Are you taking your gifts and evangelizing the lost and discipling the saved? Are you actively working towards fulfilling the great commission in our generation? you got to make sure that you're active and you're a part of what God would have you to do. Then he's pleased. Then you're fulfilled. Then his family grows. Then the community is more powerful. That's why we're here. Let's pray. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I, I just